My name is Hemish Langaratne, and I'm the founder of RX Group and the host of Let's Talk Quality. Let's Talk Quality is a podcast aimed at quality assurance professionals in pharma and biotech. Join us to learn from some of the best QA leaders around the world and hear how they've developed their careers as they provide some practical insights into how they've got to the top of their field. Our mission is to shine a light on what good quality assurance really means for pharma and biotech. What impact does it really have on the patient? We want to explore some of the biggest challenges facing the sector and inspire the next generation of quality assurance leaders to continue to help bring safer and better quality therapies to patients. Welcome to season one. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Let's Talk Quality. Today's guest is Jaspreet Gill. Jazz is Chief Quality Officer at Sangamo Therapeutics. Sangamo is a clinical stage cell and gene therapy biotech operating across a range of therapeutic areas. Jazz has been at Sangamo since 2019 and she's a member of the ELT. She's worked at Acorn, Baxter and J&J in senior leadership positions over the past 25 years. So she has an extensive background in quality across a range of modalities. So I'm really excited to be talking to her. I hope you enjoy the show. Jazz, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, Tamish. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Thanks for coming in um, and joining us. Um, Jazz, we start the show with the same question. Uh, in your eyes, what are the traits of a good quality assurance leader? I think for me, the fundamental thing is that one has to be um, very uh, honest and ethical about what they are doing, right? It's a very key role where you have to make sure that um, you know the safety and efficacy of the product that you're getting out there for the patient is assured. And in everything that we do every single day, um, you know, checking the data, being honest and ethical in the work that you're doing is the super most important thing. Amazing. So, so Jazz, let's get into it then. I suppose you've had an interesting career over the last 30 years in, in quality. You've worked in a range of different mod- modalities. How did you find the transition from small molecule into cell and gene therapy? Because it's an interesting topic at the moment where like, is, is quality quality? A lot of people say that to me. Um, you've obviously gone from small molecule into cell therapy um, and worked in that field for the last five five years or so. H- how did you find that transition? I would say, Hamish, the transition um, is challenging, but rewarding, right? And the reason I say it's challenging is because, um, well, first of all, cell therapy is a complex manufacturing process, right? And uh, while you do bring some of the learnings from your career, um, you know, when you're in small molecule, uh, and it does provide a very solid foundation uh, to to grow and understand the cell manufacturing process, um, you know, there is still some learning that has to occur. And um, at the same time, the regulations are um, not very clear. They're not, you know, uh, well established. They're still evolving. So I think um, kind of figuring out in that gray zone is challenging. But what I would say is at the same time, it's rewarding. Rewarding, why? Because I think that, um, you know, A, you are uh, working with groundbreaking technologies, right? And that's rewarding in of itself. And, um, you know, the promise of uh, a life-changing impact therapy for the patient, that in itself is rewarding. And then as a quality leader, you're working with the team that's assuring the safety and efficacy of data. So that's very gratifying. Yeah. So let's, I suppose, talk about the the rewarding side, because that's something that I'm keen to to talk about with you. 
having having worked in the field for the last few years, what what is the potential for the cell and gene therapy industry? Why does it excite you so much? I think the potential is unlimited, um, but I think it'll be, according to me, a while um, before this personalized medicine becomes the medicine of choice, um, because there's still a lot of things to be worked out. And um, why does it excite me? I think that's very straightforward and simple. First of all, it's a transformative treatment, right? It can actually cure the patient and bring some long-term benefits. Uh, secondly, I think it allows you to deal with some of the unmet medical needs, um, you know, especially for um, patients and, and their families. It brings hope, um, you know, where some of the genetic disorders, um, there is no treatment for them today, you know, so we can potentially treat those with this. And then I think also the global impact, you know, because this is a once and done treatment. So, um, you know, you can actually uh, potentially treat a lot, much larger population uh, in a in a much faster way, right? And therefore treat people globally. So I think that to me um, are some of the things that excite me. Um, honestly, Himesh, I feel that this represents uh, a significant leap forward um, in the medical science with the promise of revolutionizing healthcare for the better. Yeah, it, I agree. It's um, it's a, I mean, it's projected to grow. I think something like eight from eighteen billion US dollars to 80, 80 something billion dollars in yeah. the next 10 years. Um, there's obviously going to be some, a lot of challenges over that period of time. What do you think, what are the key factors or what are the key challenges do you think that will stop it from reaching its full potential or, or just slowing down um, its progress? I mean, I think there's a few. I, you know, let me go over a few of them. Um, I think supply chain um, is a huge uh, issue, right? Uh, and why I say supply chain, because we're dealing, you know, especially in case of the cell therapy and, and spe uh, specifically for autologous cell therapy, right? We are dealing with a very complex end-to-end -end process and um, everything has to go just right for um, a viable treatment for the patient. And, um, you know, we are dealing with live products with the cells and they're shipped all over the country or sometimes um, between countries uh, in different geographies. And that's not, um, you know, that that whole transportation system is not yet well established. So I think that um, in itself is a challenge. The other thing I think um, for me personally, what I've observed is comparability, right? Comparability is a huge challenge because when you step up from early stage, small scale uh, studies to, you know, late stage or even commercial um, manufacturing, uh, the, the scale up difference is huge, right? And main, maintaining the viability and functionality of cells um, at scale requires, um, you know, better automation, analytics, and a very mature supply chain. And I think none of those, as you know, these isn't uh, available, right, at this point in time. Mm. Uh, when we talk about automation, right, many of the cell therapy processes are open processes. They're not closed. And therefore, you know, it will get there, you know, but it'll take us a little while. Um, I think, you know, if, if you think about cell therapy specifically, you know, at the crux of it all, um, you know, cell therapies are typically dosed uh, at a later stage, you know, in, in the treatment, right? You know, these are very sick patients, right? It's not the first choice of treatment, if you will. And so 
Um, and then we're taking the cell material from these very sick patients. So the variability there of the starting material um, is, um, is a huge contributor, right, from a complexity of the manufacturing process perspective. And, um, and also making the whole supply chain uh, sort of like very suboptimal. Um, so those are some of the, you know, some of the things that I would say from a supply chain perspective are challenging. Um, I think the other uh, factor is the cost, um, right? The cost of getting these materials, you know, the the collection, the aphoresis material, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the whole supply chain, right? Um, is still kind of, we're still working through some of the kinks of that. And, um, and so, um, you know, we are talking millions of dollars spent in the, um, in the development of this, not, not sure if that is ever going to become a treatment or not. And then even when it does, and you've seen some of the pricing of uh, a few cell therapies that are out there available, um, you know, it's not something that is accessible to everybody. So accessibility is, is another challenge. And when I talk about accessibility, it's not just the cost factor. It's also the factor that not all of the hospitals, especially like the community hospitals, they don't necessarily have the resources to administer these therapies, um, you know. And uh, so, so for patients who want them, um, they, you know, they may not be close to hospitals or clinics where these therapies can be available, which means that you know they have to incur a whole lot of cost when it comes to travel and, uh, you know. Uh, hotel and stuff like that, not to be closer to the place where they can get the treatment. And so, you know, this last mile delivery to the patient is, I personally personally believe, is an underappreciated component. Uh, but it's really important to ensure equitable access to treatment for all. Like that's a really it's a really interesting point. But how, like, how far away are we from from that? Obviously, cost is is a key in in that in that topic, but how, like, are you hopeful um, with regards to specifically to accessibility? I am absolutely hopeful. Um, I mean, that's why I'm in this industry. Um, but, and I also believe it, that it'll happen one day, but it's not in the mm. very near future. I think it'll be a little while before we get to mm. a place where these kind of therapies are, uh, we are able to administer in all of the hospitals, especially like community hospitals and, yeah. you know, um, so um, remote access, um, you know, in, in hospitals and stuff like that. So I think, that, you know, it's a bit of a journey. We're still early on in this, but yeah. there's definitely hope. Yeah. And when you say supply chain and automation, would, would that, I suppose, would that come out of the manufacturing capacity um, challenge? Is that, is that what you refer it's all to? Yeah. Manufacturing complexity, capacity, um, you know, the fact that there is uh, shortages, as you are very well aware of right now, you know, yeah. and there's not enough capacity from a manufacturing perspective. There's a few CDMOs. A large number of the cell therapy companies do not necessarily have in-house manufacturing capabilities. All of those things come into play, um, you know, yeah. when we're talking about manufacturing complexity. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then something that we've I know we've spoken about before is the is the talent shortage yes. and human 100%. capital in in that 100%. field. Um, you know, Amish, it's uh, actually been uh, one of the biggest challenges. I'm glad you reminded me of it. Um, it's uh, you know you hire people. First of all, there is not a whole lot of talent out there um, when it comes to expertise in this area, right? 
And so when you bring in people um, that, um, you know, you say, okay, they have the right qualifications, so you can train them. You can train them in your process um, and make sure they understand all the nuances, um, you know, as to what to control and, you know, uh, what are the signs of variability and stuff like that. And this all takes time, right? I'm talking, you know, a few months and sometimes several runs have to be done in order for them to get the experience. And, you know, but again, because this talent pool um, is very uh, limited, you know, um, before you know, they're gone. You know, there's something else, you know, yeah. better um, that uh, they get attracted to. And, um, you know, and in the last three, four years specifically, you know, it's been quite a challenge of trying to uh, trying to keep talent, um, specifically after if you've invested uh, quite a bit of time in training them. And so I think that's going to yeah. continue to be a challenge for this industry for a while. And is there anything that you have done in your career or, you know, especially in the last four or five years to, I suppose, build a culture where it's very much patient-centric to, I suppose, incentivize and motivate and inspire the the talent that you do have to stay within the business, stay within the the sector? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, obviously uh, having a culture where your uh, company mission is patient-centric I think that right. is very key. You know, people can align with that and their personal philosophies. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, specifically at Sangamo, uh, it's been at all the companies before as well, but since we're talking cell therapy at Sangamo, uh, they've been very good at doing it is bringing patients in um, and sometimes their families as well, uh, as well, yeah. you know, or uh, to talk about their experiences, right? To talk about, how they went through the whole journey and come to kind of terms with it and how they're getting the treatment and, and, and you know, um, how are they feeling today? And when you have a room full of employees who are listening to the patient, their personal story, all of a sudden that becomes an inspiration, right? And inspiration to do the right thing, to be there and make sure, you know, that you, that you contribute in taking that therapy to the patient. Um, in your capacity. And I think those are kind of things that companies are doing to to really have that patient-centric culture. And then of course, as a quality leader, what I would say is, you know, uh, we have to make decisions. Uh, We have to make sometimes very tough decisions, Um, but keeping uh, patient safety front and center has always been I can tell you the North Star for me um, as to, you know, that allows me to make the right decisions every single time. So that also contributes to the culture because, you know, um, um, as you take certain decisions, it's kind of like others are watching you as a leader and therefore they yeah. they imbibe the same um, in their day-to-day, you know, work ethics. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and let's, it'd be good to touch on that aspect of, uh, quality leadership, mm-hmm. I suppose, um, specific to to someone in in your position, heading up a quality function, um, working on the extended leadership team um, as part of the business. What what role does quality play in helping the cell therapy, gene therapy um, sector reach its full potential? I mean, quality. If you think. Uh, of it is embedded in all of the, you know, all of the factors of the business, right? Um, I always say that 
first of all, quality is not just quality's job. And, and I know that's a cliche, but it's really true. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, if you think of all of the other components as sort of like vertical lines, I see quality as a horizontal line that runs through all of yeah. them, right, and binds them together. And um, so I think as a, uh, you know, as a quality function, you know, you have to make sure that, uh, you know, every single day, the, the work that's happening, uh, be it in development, be it in research, be it in manufacturing, supply chain, whatever it is, that you have the right oversight uh, in making sure that, you know, at the end of the day, the product meets specifications uh, and you have a safe and effective product that you're releasing from, from your factory. Yeah, yeah. So as, as companies, a lot of people would be interested in hearing from someone like you because if you've been through the journey, you've been through multiple BLAs um, and, and you've um, scaled up quality functions from sort of clinical to, to, to commercial. I suppose what, um, as a quality leader, how do you go about developing robust processes as you scale up manufacturing and, and go through the, the, the clinical phase through to late clinical phase and commercial, what what would a quality leader, um, what processes should be they be implementing? And I suppose, what are the pitfalls that you might face along the journey? So you asked me two questions there. One was yeah, I did. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's. Touch... I went off on one. <laughs> no, no worries. Uh, let's touch uh, bases on both of them. I think you know, as far as you know, the BLA experience is concerned. You asked me what are some of the things that you know. Um, quality should should oversee and be aware of, you know. And so, so I think that first and foremost, I mean, there's they're not in any order of priority, you know. But but a few things that that as a leader, you know, and as a quality team, you have to keep in focus is one is the scalability, right? Because uh, you know, assuring that you know you'll meet the demands when it gets to commercialization, uh, you know, because you've only been doing you know, sort of early, late stage kind of a thing, and you haven't really kind of uh, scaled up to the commercial level, I think that scalability is very important, right? Assuring that any challenges that come across, that you are understanding them and that um, dealing with them in a timely manner in order to avoid any delays and shortages, right? Then consistency is the second one, I would say. Uh, consistency in quality, um, you know, uh, both in quality control and quality assurance, right? And so making mm -hmm. sure that um, the assays are robust, uh, you know, validations are done properly uh, from a process perspective. All of those things help together in making sure that, um, you know, your, your uh, packages uh, that you send to BLA are not only approved, but also as you get towards commercialization, your process is consistent, right? So you're making a, you're producing a consistent product. And then yeah. um, regulatory compliance, we can't forget that, right? That's very important. Um, as I said before, the regulatory pathways are still being defined. Guidances are not 100% all um, available and clear. And so as a leader, you have to make sure that, uh, you know, not only do you understand and navigate through those, um, but also be able to help others understand the requirements, right? And then um, I would say the, um, the data, itself is very important. You know, the the safety mm -hmm. and efficacy data is very important to understand. We talked about the logistics and, uh, of supply chain and the challenges they are in. And, and then, um, you know, 
uh, of course, the um, you know once your bill is approved and you're moving towards commercialization, I'm sure there's going to be post-approval commitments. Uh, so, so keeping an eye yeah. on them and making sure that those are met on time is also important, right? Um, and then moving on to your second question there, where you asked me about you know what are some of the processes that you need to develop, and then what are the pitfalls, right? Um, as you scale up manufacturing. I think the processes, for me, process validation is very important, right? Uh, because every single step of the manufacturing process, which, if it's properly validated through um, you know, um, various experiments, studies, testing, um, then, then I think you, you know, you're, you're moving in the right direction, right? And then automation standardization, we touched on that a little bit before. If you can automate, that's, that's you know, honestly, you're basically reducing human errors. You know, and then uh, standardization, you know, uh, allows you to maintain consistency. Um, your QC and QA, um, you know, making sure you're establishing re uh, rigorous uh, procedures in place uh, so that uh, you have the right control mechanisms uh, to monitor product quality throughout um, the manufacturing process. Um, a skilled team, making sure that you're providing training uh, and, um, you know, and you have uh, all the right procedures, and then your your team is um, up to speed with them from a training perspective, uh, and they have the right skill sets. And then, um, um, you know, of course, establishing a robust supply chain process. Those are some of the things that I would say, um, you know, are important to establish from a process perspective. What are the pitfalls? Uh, number one for me, as I mentioned to you before, Himesh, is resource constraints. Um, when you are scaling up, you're going to need more resources. And um, you know that always is is uh, challenging. Um, regulatory hurdles is another one. I think we all have experienced that. Specifically, I would say in the cell and gene therapy space, as you can see, a lot lot of companies, no matter big or small, uh, you know they all have to face them. Um, and so that's another one to keep an eye on uh, from a pitfall perspective. Um, any of the manufacturing challenges that can affect your supply and uh, your yield, you know, um, uh, as well as product quality, I think those are another. That's another area to keep an eye on, and uh, disruptions in the supply chain. You know, what what can cause them? Because you're dealing with third party partners uh, and so forth, and sometimes your your components are coming from different geographies. You know, so keeping an eye on that is very important. Um, and then I think finally, what I would say is the intellectual property. I think uh, this is still an area that's still, you know, so new. And so if you're working with different partners, you know, it's important to understand whose IP is what, you know, and making that uh, uh, clear up front. I think that's an, another uh, area, not directly in my um, preview, but I've seen that uh, also a, a bit of a pitfall. So process-wise then, so process validation, automation, QAQC, having a skilled team and um, a robust supply chain are, are some of the key processes. Absolutely. Um, and you know, one other thing you can sure do is you can actually do risk assessments um, upfront uh, in order to understand what could be the potential um, uh, you know, manufacturing issues and how are you going to, what your mitigation strategies are going to be. So if you can do that upfront, then when you actually, you know, get to do the work or get to do the manufacturing, you know, you already have a roadmap um, to follow. What about automation though? Uh, uh, it's such a kind of 
a word that has has come up a lot over the last, especially the last few years. Yeah. Um, and it, things will probably change a lot over the next decade in terms of how automated processes become. It, like, where are we from a, an automation perspective in, in the world of quality and, and manufacturing? Um, it's not 100% in a box. Uh, so it's not an end-to-end -end process in a box, at least in what I have seen. You know, um, there. Yeah. You know, we're getting towards there. There are certainly steps within the process, within the manufacturing process that we're putting in the box. Um, you know, and there is an effort to kind of say how can we do it end to end. But there's, it's not there yet. So, but that's that's the drive. You know, how to get there. Yeah, brilliant. Well, there's some some really good practical. Um, processes there that you've mentioned and obviously the pitfalls and challenges that leaders would face um, along the way. Uh, we, we, we're we coming towards the end of the chat and there's been some really good insights, but I'd like to just touch on, I suppose, your, um, your leadership outlook um, and also, um, I suppose, um, the advice that you would give to quality professionals in general that are coming through um through their management journey or their leadership journey or, or even just starting in quality so um what practical advice would you give to someone who is early in their career in quality assurance i would say uh lead with um authenticity uh integrity is really really important i think if you're honest that comes across um even if you make a mistake it's okay um, you know, and um, but transparency within um, your organization, uh, with your team, as well as with the regulators is important in order to continue to make progress. And I feel personally that authentic leaders build trust and they foster uh, um, inclusive work environment. So for me, that would be the number one thing that I would advise. And then, of course, you know, strive for innovation. This is a this is a very innovative um, field that we are working in. So uh, at the same time, you know, even if you're a quality leader, you have to kind of understand how can you be innovative rather than just relying on the age old uh, ways of doing things, right? And I'm not saying you know throw the baby with the bathwater, but like how can you be more creative? And um, one of the things that I've always advised and actually have worked on is phase appropriate. Uh, quality system because it's not a one one you know uh, quality system that will work for everything right so um, uh, establishing that helps the organization quite a bit so I think a quality leader uh, can play a huge part in that and then be resilient be resilient and adaptive because that's what's needed here um, and then um, you know uh, I think there are also soft skills that are needed. Uh, you know, and yeah. so I think, uh, that was my next question. That was your next question. Okay. <laughs> awesome. So, so, <laughs> so no, that's great go. because it's, it's a combination of both, right? It's more technical and, uh, you know, at the same time, uh, the, the people skills, which I actually focus quite a bit on personally, uh, you know, especially when I'm doing hiring. Uh, and I think, uh, for me, um, you know, developing emotional intelligence is very, very important. Uh, you know, if you're empathetic uh, and can be an active listener, um, you can go a long way. And then um, I think quality leaders specifically have to be an effective communicator, um, you know, uh, and then um, 
be collaborative. It's not, um, you know, uh, it takes a village to get this done. So you need to bring everybody uh, together with you. Yeah, um, agree. Yeah, I think communication, empathy, authenticity, being an active listener. I always, always used to tell my my team um, two two ears and one mouth um, that that you've got. Make sure you, you use the two ears. But um, yeah, there's there's some good skills, and I think everyone should be trying to develop those as a quality leader, whatever stage I suppose you, in your career. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, know, my final question, Jazz, would be. Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say that I always think that you know, uh, if you um, if you can leave the the organization a better place um, than when you came, right? That's uh, really mm. the aim. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and and I suppose my last question would be around what motivates you, what inspires you, and what gets you up in the morning. I think for me, it's the um, uh, it's the focus on the patient. It's the you know because as quality, I've always kind of felt like it's, it's almost like my responsible to make sure the product that we release is is safe and and uh, effective and and basically meets all of the requirements, right? All of the specifications. And so, being that in quality, you are the last unit uh, in the organization that is basically um, saying, yes, it's all good and we can now release it. It brings a huge responsibility. Um, and, and I think at the same time, it's also very gratifying. So for me, getting up and, and making sure that that product is, is safe and it's effective and we can release it and, and I can sleep at night with, you know, without any sort of um, you know, uh, concerns, um, that is important. And then, um, you know, getting up in the morning and, and doing it again and again and again uh, and, <laughs> and having done it for so many years and working with my team. You know, um, I think they all, you know, have a similar mindset. And um, I just thoroughly enjoy working with a team that is always keeping patient front and center. Brilliant. Well, that's a great way to, to, to finish the conversation. I think it's clear that you you've always led with purpose and that then filters into the people around you. Um, and I think when people lead with purpose um, and, and when people have a purpose in what they do, it, it makes the job more enjoyable. It makes it, it, makes it not seem like you're, you're doing work um, because you're enjoying the, the work that you do. So agree, Hinesh, um, agree. That's very kind yeah, of you, but I, I do agree with you. I have never felt my work as a job. It's my passion. I enjoy it. I honestly don't know what I would do, um, you know, uh, if I wasn't doing it. So, so I thoroughly enjoy my my work. Brilliant. Well, look, Jazz, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure, um, and it's been highly inspirational. I'm sure that a lot of people will will find value from it. So, thank you for for your time, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Mish. Thank you for having me. Cheers, Jazz. Thank you for listening to today's show. I hope that you got value from it, whether you're starting your career in quality or if you're at the top of your field. Today's episode was brought to you by RX Group. I'm the founder of RX Group. We are a pharma and biotech recruitment organization focusing purely on quality assurance. We recruit consultants and senior level permanent quality professionals into the pharma and biotech industry. If we can support you, whether that be in a hiring capacity or if you yourself are looking for work, 
Please get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Visit our LinkedIn page where you can subscribe to the podcast and visit our website, www.rx-group.io to find out more about us. See you soon.